This is Onward Radio. As a designer, I mean, there are lots of designers out there that, you know, that, that focus on different kind of areas of practice. But for me, it was, there was no compromise. It wasn't just going to be, you know, the kind of, you come in at the end of the line and do something. It was, you know, it has to be kind of an all or nothing. Um, and, and that was how I could, you know, in a sense, feel good about what I was doing too, knowing that I had this, this power as a designer. Today on Onward, we're joined by Pamela Napier via Skype from Indianapolis, Indiana. Pamela is a service designer, educator, and researcher. She is the co-founding partner of the human-centered service design firm Collabo Creative and is an assistant professor of visual communication design at Indiana University Aaron School of Art and Design. You can learn more about Pamela at collabo-creative.com. Well, Pamela, welcome to Onward Radio, and I really appreciate you accepting my invitation to be on the show. Thank you so much. I just, I feel honored to be a part of what's going on with this show, so thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you. That's that's a really nice compliment. <laughs> so I was looking into more about who you are and mm. what you do and why you do it, and we're going to get into more of that in terms of the questions uh, in the next uh you know, 30 minutes or so. But to start off with, you are an educationer, uh, educator and a design practitioner. And uh, I was really curious about um, what got you interested in design in the first place. You know, were you an artist as a child or, or what, what have you? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess I always... I was probably more of a designer as a child, even than an artist. I mean, I was never really good at like, um, like fine art practices, you know, like drawing and painting, but I always, I really was into like writing books and making books and, you know, just kind of collecting really weird ephemera. And it's, it's funny cause I see those kinds of characteristics and traits in like the designers that I know today. So, um, I was probably more of a designer as a child, but I didn't really start getting into design until I was in high school and, you know, I went to a really small school and so it's, we didn't really have any design classes per say, but I was on the um, school yearbook. And so I did a lot of um, like page layout design. And so I was like cutting, cutting pictures with an X-Acto knife and using that like blue gridded paper that was like divided into pikas. And, you know, so I, I got really <laughs> into it. And my uh, art teacher was like, hey, you should, you know, think about going into graphic design because I knew I wanted to go to art school. I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then as soon as I got into it, I just loved it. Um, but the, you know, first school that I went to, um, you know, it kind of seemed a little behind the times, maybe. I don't know. I mean, we spent a lot of studio time doing like tutorials and how to learn how to use the pen tool and illustrator, you know, and it, and so I was kind of interested in the bigger concepts of design. So I ended up uh, transferring and went to um, Heron School of Art and Design where I teach now. And, um, you know, because they had a a broader view of design. I mean, they looked at it as more of a problem solving process and not just, um, you know, kind of visual production. And so um, I got my undergrad there um, in visual communication design. And then I, I, I kind of found myself in advertising for a little while. It was for about a oh, year really? after oh, I graduated. Really? Yeah. And what uh, were you, uh, what were you advertising? <laughs> um, food and oh, yeah. <laughs> stuff that, that, um, you know, I got to a point where I was kind of like, I, I didn't want to be using my skills to 
kind of sell people stuff they don't need or want. I mean, I was, it was for like hamburgers and stuff is what I was doing. And <laughs> so it was kind of soul sucking. And I was just like, I, there's something more to this. And I, and I was really um, starting to be really interested in sustainable design at the time. And, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to figure out how to start inspiring like the next generation of designers. I really wanted to teach um, because I was like, I didn't get that kind of education, but I had an appreciation for it. Um, and so I ended up quitting, um, you know, left my full-time job, 401k, all that, and went back to grad school um, to get my master's so that I could uh, teach. And then I, I spent um, those two years working on my uh, thesis where I was focusing on, um, you know, how we could integrate like personal and holistic values for, you know, society, economy, and, you know, the environment into designers' working processes. So you, I think you kind of remember, I, I uh, talked with you and had you look at some stuff when I was in grad school. That's, so. that's right. That's right. Yeah. That was a while back. And, you know, yeah, as a vegetarian, I appreciate the fact that you <laughs> gave, gave up selling hamburgers. Too. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> Same here. It was, it was bad. So you said your interest in teaching, um, it came from um, your experiences in your first undergrad where you weren't getting the right, uh, you know, mentorship or education. And that made you want to, to be someone who was in that role. Or is that what I heard? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when I started really kind of developing an interest in, in how to be a more sustainable designer, I realized that I didn't, I was, I didn't feel equipped, you know, to have the kind of skill set or the kind of knowledge that I needed um, to be able to design more sustainably and to think more holistically about what I was doing. And so I, I that's, that's where I, you know, kind of wanted to figure out, okay, well, I, I want to be able to teach people how to do this so that they can come out of school with that knowledge that I felt like I was lacking. Yeah, what does the word uh, "designing sustainably" mean to you? Um, I mean, to me, it, 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 there's so many kind of conflicting terms. Like, is it sustainable design or design for sustainability? But to me, it's a more holistic approach. So you're thinking about and considering, you know, implications of, for your decisions that 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 impact, you know, society, that impact the environment, that impact, you know, the economy, and that impact culture as a whole. I mean, that's why I really appreciate um, the the AIGA's living principles of design because they they bring you know those kind of four quadrants together, um, and and it's so it's a more holistic perspective. Perspective. It's not mm. just about, you know, the kinds of products that you select or use, but it's, you know, I think it should be infused throughout your entire process as a designer. So when you are teaching um, at Heron, you teach at uh, Heron School of Art, mm -hmm. do you um, do you have classes there about sustainability or is that something that you just put in your classes, uh, your general classes? Yeah, it's. I think it's more infused throughout the classes. I mean, we're kind of looking at the curriculum right now, and we're thinking about having, you know, specialized classes where you know we have instructors that teach, you know, to a niche. But there, it's really infused throughout the entire curriculum, um, and you know, the the kinds of projects that the students are working on. Um, you know, they're they're being tasked with considering these things and asking questions, and um, you know, figuring out when they get to you know having spec sheets and that kind of thing. Like they they really need to consider every decision that they're making. So I feel like it's it's being infused, um, in, especially in the upper level classes in the graduate program, for sure. Well, yeah, as an educator myself, I, I, I prefer that approach because mm -hmm. if you offer, you know, like a sustainable design um, as an elective, for instance, mm -hmm. and, you know, a student comes into the, you know, fall semester and you say, you have your choice. You can take sustainable design as an elective or motion design mm -hmm. and, you know, any, any elective really. And it, and it just puts them on equal footing as right. 
Oh, they're both equally as important because they're both electives, and it's. Right. I don't think they are, but that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I that's going to be my personal opinion there. Mm-hmm. But, um, so at Heron, um, you teach there, you do research there, and you do a bunch of stuff there. Do you do you have a normal day, and and what does that look like as a design educator, especially for the listeners who who don't know really what design educators do? You know, what what do you do in a normal day at Heron? Um, well, so I, I teach, I've taught all throughout like the undergraduate and graduate curriculum, but, you know, recently I've, I've just been in, you know, the kind of upper level, like senior level classes in the undergrad. And then, um, you know, the second year, uh, grad students, um, I, I have in the grad curriculum. And so like, for example, this past fall, um, I, I teach mostly second year grad students in the mornings. And so I have studio courses where we focus on, um, developing skill sets around design facilitation, um, and, and working on their master's thesis proposals. And then in the after, and then I would, you know, have a break probably in the middle of the day. And so I would have time to write or, you know, we have a lot of um, uh, like department and, and school and university service, right? As a as a tenure track professor, so you know you've got meetings and that kind of thing. And then in the afternoon, I would normally have um, undergrad students. And so um, in the fall, I had seniors, and they were um, they were focusing on working in like collaborative groups, doing service learning projects in our mm-hmm. in our local communities. And so they were starting to learn how to conduct um, participatory, you know, people centered research and how they could select and, and develop design research methods. And then in the spring, I would have, you know, grad students in the morning again and would take them, you know, further along in their, you know, design facilitation skill set and, and, and working on their thesis because um, I would teach, you know, a thesis writing class and then I'd have like a second year studio class. And then um, in the afternoons, I would have juniors. And so they they were doing, you know, collaborative service learning work as well, but they're just starting to skim the surface of participatory design. So they're just starting to see what kind of methods are out there and, and learning that there's more than, you know, just interviewing and observation. You can actually actually, you know, develop, um, different kinds of, of methods to engage people. So, um, but it's all kind of the same, you know, the same theme, which I really enjoy. Like it really um, supplements my research. Well, the kinds of things I'm able to have students do in the, in the studio. You didn't mention lunch at all. Do you got do you do you have any breaks at all during your day? <laughs> yes, yes. Like we get we get about an hour, you know, lunch. But a lot of times, you know, I will uh, sometimes I'll take my food into the studio, and after I <laughs> answer some questions and get class started, I might have to eat because you know we get a lot of eating scheduled during lunch too. So, but your I do day, eat. I try your to find your day sounds a lot like mine. So right. I think <laughs> if you were confused about what design educators do, I think maybe now you have a little bit more insight into that. Um, you mentioned participatory design a couple times here and collaborative design. Um, can you tell our listeners and myself, you know, what, what that is? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, so, you know, there's so many kind of terms that are, that are similar, whether you say, you know, participatory or, or co-designing, um, you know, I always loved the, the definition put out by, um, Liz Sanders, who, you know, she's the founder of, of make tools and, and she teaches at Ohio state and she's really a leader in the area of co-design, but, you know, she, she defines co-design as, you know, the collective creativity of designers and people not trained in design, um, who work together throughout the design development process, which, you know, to me, the, the design development process could pertain to anything. It could be, you know, products or services, experiences, what have you. Um, and, you know, what I love about this idea of being participatory or people-centered um, and, and you know, the idea of co-designing is that it's inherently people-centered and that it has to carry the value system that 
people are experts of their own experiences, mm-hmm. you know, that all people have the ability to design and that, you know, it's about designing with people, not just for people. So how do you engage and enable people to, to be able to do that? I think it's perfect for America, right? Where you have right. of the people, for the people, and with the people, right? <laughs> yeah, and it takes you away from that, you know, like designer as expert mentality, right? Where, you exactly. know, designers are kind of sitting in a, in a closed room by themselves on their computer and then like, ta-da, they have this finished product. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's not like that anymore. And I don't, I don't think it should be. So do you feel that uh, this type of design methodology is, is something that can help produce, you know, social change, or, or just be a better uh, way of communicating whatever the client needs. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think that the very nature of, of co-design or participatory design is about enabling and empowering everyday people to solve problems that affect them, right, in their daily lives. And so, you know, if they're given the opportunity to explore challenges that they're facing and then in turn come up with ideas for how to solve those challenges and then be able to create and test out, you know, these like solutions that they come up with, then they'll be able to develop a greater sense of ownership and, and, then, uh-huh. and then in turn may be more likely to change behaviors and actions. And and I think because, you know, co-design and, and participatory design focus on bringing in multiple stakeholders into the design process, you know, from original problem owners, say, to like subject matter experts, then I think you're able to create more holistic and meaningful solutions that, that will then have a, a much broader impact. So it's about investment. So the more that that uh, that group or whoever is part of the design process is um, they they're more invested in the outcome of their part of it. Is that what is that yeah. what it means? Okay. Yeah, so I think so. That's part of it for sure. And outside of of teaching, um, you also run a design studio called Collabo. Mm-hmm. And um, from what I've read, it it's on your website. It, it seems to be that you're putting your research from uh, what you teach and what you do at Heron into um, bringing co-design into action like mm-hmm. hey I can I can run a studio with this yep <laughs> yeah um, what are the challenges you've faced by you know trying to putting these theories into test at collabo well I think you know what I, I guess one challenge that that um we wrestle with is is how to to communicate or really explain the nature of what we do and the value it brings right because like you know, thinking about design process and even design thinking methods and, you know, those can be kind of ambiguous in nature. And, and you know, you have to help people become comfortable with that ambiguity if they're going to follow you through this process, knowing that, you know, if, if they go through the entire process, that they're going to have an outcome at the end because, you know, we're trying to get to action. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that helps is being able to share um, tangible, you know, examples and outcomes and, and being able to highlight, you know, the different facets of what we do, depending on who we're talking to and being able to even point to like industry specific examples, like in healthcare, for example, where you can see this approach and methodology has been successful um, in improving services and experiences. And then, then, you know, it helps us to illustrate that value of what it can bring. But, you know, the, the, the work that we've done so far, we've, we've been fortunate enough to have a, a great, you know, client base that, um, you know, they're on board, you know, they buy into what we're talking about. And once they experience it, you know, once, then they're able to say, you know, wow, this, this really does work work. This is how, you know, our, our employees and staff were able to get involved. This is how it's, you know, impacted what we do. Um, and so, you know, it kind of takes us telling them about it a little bit and then having them just dive in with us, um, that then they're able to see, um, what it can do. 
compared to when you were working in advertising, <laughs> yeah, how it, how is the you know interfacing with the client while at Collabo um, different or the same? Um, it's different in the sense that, you know, when I was in advertising, there really wasn't any, um, you know, going out and, and talking to the people that we were designing for, right? Like we just kind of made assumptions or just did, you know, some secondary research. Something and, that looked cool, catchphrase. Yeah, that kind of I, thing. absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, how can we persuade, right? Instead of, mm-hmm. you know, really trying to tap into, well, you know, you're saying this is what they need, but is it really what they need? And if it is, why do they need it? You know, there was, there was never any of that exploration that went into it. It was just kind of sitting around and, you know, trying to be creative in a room and it, and it, and it just, you know, I didn't see how that could have the same kind of impact as, as, you know, working with the people that we were actually made, you know, trying to sell Do we really need to. hamburgers? Is really exactly. Do we really need, yes. And, That's and, the collabo approach, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it definitely seems to be quite a different approach. Um, what do you think your most successful project is so far um, while working at collabo? Um, well, actually, one of the um, the projects that we wrapped up, I think, around last year, uh, my co-founding partner, Terry Wada, and I just um, published a paper in um, the journal Visible Language. And so it was called Co-Designing for Healthcare. Um, and, and in that paper, we described uh, a case study of a project we did uh, with a nonprofit coalition called MESH. Um, and so they offer a lot of different services in uh, the healthcare sector, basically around emergency management. Um, and they had this service um, that they called the Daily Situational Awareness Brief. Um, and so basically, it was a it was a daily digest that you know highlighted important news. And, and research and practice developments, and it would get forwarded to this, you know, huge subscriber list um, as a downloadable PDF. And it was something that had really become a vital part of the everyday rituals of people in healthcare. You know, from nurses to you know these disaster management coordinators that we talked to. And um, so then, what, but Mesh brought in Collabo because they were in a spot where one, they felt like the production process of the brief was just taxing their staff and you know their whole their whole um, you know mission. And the distribution process was in need of an overhaul because you know, having to download these PDFs and the way that people were using it, it just, it just wasn't very user-friendly. Um, and then they wanted the experience of, you know, receiving and viewing and, and even sharing the brief to other people. They wanted that to be better. Um, and so we worked with people throughout the entire redesign process. Um, you know, we worked with Mesh's staff. We worked with um, users who received and used the brief, like um, doctors and nurses and administrators. Um, we worked with a separate graphic design firm um, who gave it an entirely new look and feel. We worked with a digital messaging firm who then helped like implement that new service. And so it was great because we were able to bring all of the most, you know, important stakeholders to the table. And then we had them work collaboratively to envision, you know, what this service could be, what they wanted it to be, um, what it could look like, what it could do. Um, And then, you know, we were able to create these prototypes and test them before we had that final product. And, you know, since then it's actually increased, you know, their user subscription and it's increased user satisfaction, which is what we found after doing, you know, some, um, you know, testing afterward. Um, and, and one of the great things, you know, after talking to some of the users after the project was over, um, for one example, we, we talked to a group of nurses and it really changed their, their daily practices because they would use this brief in their morning huddles to kind of get a sense of, you know, what was going on in the world on a daily basis and, and it helped them prepare for their day ahead. And so um, the redesign actually helped make, um, you know, their ease of use with it a lot easier in these, in these huddles that they had. Uh, no, I was just wondering then if, as I'm, I'm listening to you, uh, describe basically the process. Um, 
how would you, you know, I've seen a lot of this on, you know, studio websites where they kind of break it down into different chunks. Like first is the research stage, you know, this type of thing. How would you break out like that uh, collaborative or participatory design process into these sort of steps? Because it does seem like a longer process than, you know, in comparison to like what you did in advertising. Absolutely. And it is. And I think that's something that, you know, we, when we work with clients, we kind of tell them like, this is our process and this is how we work. And you have to have that investment. Um, and we actually use a process, we break it into six different um, phases. And so, you know, the first phase is all about sensing. So how do we sense the current conditions? And, you know, that has to deal a lot with, you know, ethnographic research, observation, interviews, those kinds of things. Um, and then we go into phase two, which is about understanding. And so that how do we understand behaviors and experiences? So it's a lot lot of, um, you know, qualitative research that we do with people. And then, you know, we analyze and synthesize that whatever data we collect. Um, and then we move into framing. And so, you know, we explain that as being, you know, we, we frame insights and challenges. So whatever we find through that understanding research that we've done, we work with people to help them identify, okay, well, what are those key challenges that we need to focus on going into ideation? Um, and so then we go into ideating. So, you know, we, we have, you know, several different kinds of participatory sessions and methods that we do to, to enable people to generate ideas for solutions. Um, and then we have to go into an iteration phase. So that's phase five. So we iterate, so we, we prototype and we test and refine. And then when we get to phase six, that's the final implementation. So what does that final production look like? It, is it a, you know, final, um, you know, document? Is it a, a tangible thing? And if it is, you know, do, who, who might we need to partner with to actually implement something if we don't have the skill set on our end? Um, you know, like the, the mesh example, you know, we had to work with Exact Target um, to help, you know, implement this new digital service that they had because we didn't have the capability on our side, but we were able to find and connect with the people that, that needed to do it, you know? So with this project like Mesh that you described, uh, mm -hmm. it does seem like it's it's quite an investment from the from both sides, your side mm -hmm. and the client side. Um, mm -hmm. How do you, you know, negotiate that? Well, it's going to probably be a little bit more time than you're used to, maybe a little bit mm -hmm. more cost. How do you, how do you talk to them about that? And, and, and how do you convince them that if it is a little bit more expensive than another studio, um, how do you sell yourself in that situation? Yeah, well, so we what we've done before, um, and I, what I think works well is that we're able to kind of show them, you know, this is the process and this is what we can do for you throughout the process. But we're also able to scale back. So, you know, depending on their needs, um, you know, it might be that that they're already at a point where they have some challenges they want to focus on, and so maybe we don't need to go through the whole, um, you know, sensing phase. Maybe we're able to do sensing with just you know an initial pre-consult meeting with you know a couple of the key um, stakeholders or problem owners and, and, you know, figure it out from there. Um, you know, we've also done projects where, you know, we've came in and facilitated, you know, half day, full day participatory sessions with people where we're able to get through, um, you know, ideation, iteration, and getting to, you know, a final prototype that could be carried on into another phase. And, you know, they could bring in someone else to do the implementation or they could come back to us. So we're able to kind of scale, um, you know, the scope of the work that we could provide depending on what they need. But we always start with the, you know, the, the most we could give them, right? So that then mm -hmm. they can decide, you know, okay, well, it does sound like a worthy investment or maybe we want to start here and see how that goes. And then, you know, um, we've had people come back to us before and say they want to finish it out. So, so you give them options, basically. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it seems like if you, a little bit earlier on in our conversation, you mentioned the triple bottom line of, mm -hmm. of people, profit, and planet, where you can define as sustainability. And it seems like with what you're doing at Collabo, you're definitely um, talking about the economic side of things and also 
from the people side of things, of course. Um, are you able to even uh, bring into the environmental side of uh, these type of projects um, into the conversations with the client or the final outcome? Yeah, I think, you know, d depending on what the kind of project is, we always have, you know, this initial conversation and we kind of talk about impact. And then when it comes to producing things, you know, on our end, we try and be, you know, as, as careful and responsible as possible with the kinds of, um, you know, uh, products and processes that we use. But um, when it comes to final implementation of something, you know, we're, we always want to, you know, help do some of that research for the client to let them know, like, mm -hmm. here are your options. This is going to be, you know, best for you economically. This is also going to be best for you environmentally, right? Um, so, you know, we try and give them um, those options as well so that they can make the choice. And they know, they know, you know, from working with us, you know, what we would advocate for, right? So, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we try, we try and, you know, be as transparent as possible yeah and uh transparency is a big thing right mm -hmm. the, the more you let them know what they're going to be going through throughout the entire process the more i think they're going to be invested in it mm -hmm. most likely yeah. well you talked a lot about um society and, and giving back to your students and then just your own you know professional work how did you become interested in this um, you know sustainability concept or you know just social change in general um Wow, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think it it came from, you know, wanting to, you know, create value and and create po like positive impact in the world. I guess. I mean, I think that sounds kind of lofty, but you know, wanting to make an impact because I think you know, as a designer, you have this immense responsibility. You know, I mean, you're 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 creating new things in the world, or you're trying to, um, you know, improve on things that exist already. And so, um, how can you do it in the most, um, you know, re responsible way possible to essentially improve lives. And I think that, you know, having that as a goal, uh, as a designer, I mean, there are lots of designers out there that, you know, that, that focus on different kind of areas of practice. But for me, it was, there was no compromise. It wasn't just mm -hmm. going to be, you know, the kind of, you come in at the end of the line and do something. It was, you know, it has to be kind of an all or nothing. Um, and, and that was how I could, you know, in a sense, feel good about what I was doing too, knowing that I had this, this power as a designer. Well, it seemed like you have felt that way for a long time, even before you started selling hamburgers in the <laughs> advertising industry. Um, was this something that goes all the way back to being a child? You were, um, you felt this way or was it something that, you know, maybe that experience at the ad agency sort of triggered? No, no, I think it, it goes all the way back to, you know, growing up. My, my father was a, um, a naturalist. And so he worked, um, you know, in the department of natural resources. And so, um, you know, just my, the nature of how I grew up and how we, you know, grew our own food and recycled. And I mean, it was just, it was instilled in me at, at a really young age. And so, um, you know, it, it just kind of carried with me throughout. And, um, you know, then once I started getting into design and kind of understanding what design was, I could see this really great connection between the two um, and how they were, you know, uh, what someone who had the skills to be a designer could do in that, in that area. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think it's been with me for a really long time.
you said you grew your own food. Did you did you mm. grow up on a family farm or was this yeah. you know front yeah, yard gardening? No, yeah, we had a, a big. Um, we didn't grow like live. We were on a farm that that you could wow. have you know livestock, but um, you know we had a, a really huge garden and an orchard. Um, and so you know it was it was uh, mostly fruits and, and vegetables um and plants. But you know we we had about seven acres I think growing up and um you know so it was it was great. I, I grew up in the country in a really small town in Ohio actually. <laughs> oh, really? Does your family still have this farm? No, they don't. Not oh. anymore. Um, oh. But, you know, we, we all talk fondly of it and miss it. So, <laughs> Does does food um, come into the conversation and some of the projects you teach uh, to your students? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of funny because, you know, I it, when I first started teaching, I, I did this whole project on, um, you know, food and it was it was in a type class, really, but I had them do a lot of, you know, research. And so they were, you know, trying to form this argument. And, you know, I got accused of trying to, uh, you know, push my values uh, onto oh, yeah. the students, right? Which <laughs> which was really hard because, you know, I kind of thought, well, why don't you feel this way? Like, does everyone should care about these issues about, yeah. you know, food access and, you know, and, and so it, it really got me, uh, you know, made me take a step back. And that's kind of what, you know, uh, helped um, kind of bolster my interest in thinking about, well, then how do you infuse those values? If you can't just, you know, push your values onto someone, if you can get them to see how having a value for, you know, let's say the triple bottom line, how having a value for that actually impacts every decision that you make as a designer, like how can you make that connection so that you can see the value in it? Sure. Um, and so that's, you know, part of my research too is, is you know, instead of getting people to say, well, you know, you should drink the Kool-Aid, like it's not about that. It's about... <laughs> You know, how can you see the connection between what you already believe and how that could impact these, you know, greater, more holistic set of values? So with with that um, scenario there with your students, um, how would you have done that differently now knowing, you know, their reaction? Like, don't push your values on me. So how do you get um, connected to the students or how do you get the the students connected to the world around them? you know, what's your strategy as an educator now from learning from that experience? Yeah, well, what I've done a few times is, um, you know, try and take them through a process of like these really short, um, you know, activities where they first go through a process of even trying to verbalize and then visualize like what their own values are as students. Um, and then I have them take those values after they've, you know, communicated them and then visualize them in some way. Um, I have them connect them to the, the design process. So whatever process we're using in the studio or whatever process they use to define, you know, this is how I work. Um, I have them try and connect those values to their process. So, you know, if, if in the initial part of the design process, it's all about, you know, kind of contextual understanding, right. And sensing the space around you, how can you connect your value for, um, you know, uh, being around people or enjoying being around people? How can you connect that to a phase of the design process? Um, and then I have them go through, you know, the next phase of that would then be how do they connect more holistic values um, to their individual values? So, you know, how could they, how could they see how, you know, having a value for working with people, you know, impact society at large, right? So, you know, I try and take them through these short activities where they're just, they're essentially being forced to, you know, be explicit about the things they believe in and, you know, try and 
visualize and connect those things to these these larger processes or larger frameworks that already exist that you know they should be knowledgeable of as designers like you know the the living principles framework or like some other um design process that they could use we use um minbassador's uh, simplex process at heron and as a as an overarching design process that they can use and so um you know i think they have to be forced to kind of go through that process of externalizing what these things mean before they can even try and connect it to something larger than themselves. So you really have to put things in perspective first, mm-hmm. and then you can start to talk about, you know, how they're connected to each one of the students individually and collectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you run Collabo, mm-hmm. you teach at Heron, you have a family. Uh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> what's next for you? What, what are you, what are you interested in doing next? Mm. Well, I we're def you know definitely continuing on the path of of teaching and practicing and seeing how you know we can continue to grow collabo. But um, you know one thing in particular is doing a lot more writing. Um, you know we we've been trying to you know, push some papers out there. Um, but uh, you know at collabo we're actually starting to think about um, developing a textbook. And so we're just in the in the initial stages right now where we're starting to frame the the structure and the content that you know starts to focus on you know how do you teach people centered design um, and and design facilitation, um, as well as starting to think about a new um, taxonomy for breaking down design research methods based on their mode of knowledge creation. So it's actually looking at, you know, not looking at a design process and saying, oh, okay, well, in this phase, you could do observation or you could do, you know, this kind of method, but it's about what kind of thinking do you want to enable? What, How do you want to engage people? And then being able to select methods based on that, because, you know, there are a lot of different design research methods that you know, practitioners and, and educators use, but, um, you know, they're not always tied to process and they're not always described at the right scale and scope. I mean, there, there exists a lot of material out there for, um, you know, a lot of open source tools, right? I mean, you look at IDEO, you look at, um, you know, Frog, I mean, they've all put out these really great open access tools so that anybody could try and practice, um, you know, people-centered design. But, um, you know, we're starting to also think about it from an education perspective, you know, so how do you teach people how to do this then um, if they can't just pick up the tools and figure it out. So, so that's been really exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to push forward with that project in particular. You mentioned health as something you've worked on before in food. Is there a particular social issue you're really interested in, in bringing into the classroom or into some of your writings you mentioned? Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've focused a lot around, you know, food. We've done a lot of of projects with, um, you know, urban community gardening and, and looking at food deserts. Um, you know, I, I, I also like um, the idea of like community organizing, like how to get, you know, communities to rally around things and work together. Um, and and so, you know, that's that's been of, of particular interest because that always seems to come up, even if we're working on a project that has to deal with, you know, food or healthcare. Um, it's how do you get people to, to collaborate? And, and community could be pretty broad, right? Not just like a town, but, you know, a community within an organization even, um, you know, how do you get them to, to, to be able to collaborate, um, you know, across disciplines. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's a, a really interesting area. Well, if you go along the path of community organizer, you're, <laughs> you're on the right step to becoming president. If, if history <laughs> <laughs> says anything, it's right? not easy. Yeah. Well, we're running, running uh, out of time here. And I was interested in hearing from you, who else would you like to hear on this show that would inspire you or you think would be a, a great uh, person to inspire um, a lot of our listeners? 
That's awesome because you've, you've had some really great guests. I, I loved uh, going back and listening to the other episodes. Um, you know, and I always, I like hearing from people that wear multiple hats, right? Like, you know, the being practitioners as well as educators, as well as authors, you know, I mean, people that, that are doing, you know, multiple things at once in their careers, I think is really interesting. And, um, and I, but I was actually, and, and, you know, I was thinking about you when I was there, I was just at the, um, the Design Research Society, uh, the Cumulus Conference in Italy um, a couple weeks ago and you know there was wow that sounds great italy uh, yeah it was was pretty (laughs) nice it it wasn't a a bad gig um but so we were presenting there and uh in our session there was actually uh quite a bit of debate around some of these because you asked earlier about you know sustainable design design for sustainability and so there was some debate around those um concepts or terms as well as transition design um and you know so I, i was just kind of you know stewing about you know all of those concepts and you know what are how do you compare and contrast these ideas or these these terms? Um, and and so then I was thinking, well, you know, somebody who could probably speak to that might be um, Terry Irwin uh, mm-hmm. from Carnegie Mellon, right? Um, because and, and just you know her work in general and what she's been able to do. But I think she'd be a really interesting person, and I would I'd like to hear you know how they break down um, you know the difference between you know transition design and design for sustainability. Because one of the comments in the session that I was in was you know they're not they're not the same. You know there are, there are differences in in how we we say transition design, design for sustainability, sustainable design, that there are these subtle differences. And and so I just would be curious to hear from someone who's, yeah. who's practicing transition. Well, I guess in design for sustainability and sustainable design, it's just the reordering of the words is the, is right. the main, <laughs> that could be the main <laughs> difference. But, you know, I think Terry Irwin would be a great person. And going back to some of our earlier conversations in the show, um, we talked about sustainable design or design for sustainability, whatever you want to call it, um, being, you know, infused into the curriculum. And that's what they do at Carnegie Mellon. It's right. it's not a class. It's their curriculum. I mean, this Which is what I the design that. students are getting yeah. when they come to Carnegie Mellon. And, that, you know, that's really interesting to see, you know, five, 10 years from now, what impact that has on, you know, the design world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely have to talk to Terry Irwin then. Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for coming on Onward Radio. It's a real pleasure to have uh, had this uh, 30 some minutes to talk with you. And um, definitely, I think I've learned a little bit more about what you do and, and why it's important. Well, thank you. This was absolutely my pleasure. And um, thank you so much for having me. No problem. This episode is sponsored by a generous donation from Celery Design. Celery believes good design is a powerful force. They aim to make it a force for good by building strong brands for sustainable products, services, and programs. You can learn more about Celery at CeleryDesign.com.